This is episode two of Cinescope, and this week we talk about Khan! Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is TJ Draper, back to talk about one of his favorite films, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. How are you doing, TJ? I'm doing well. How are you, Chad? I am excited to talk about this movie with you. (laughs) I am super excited. Um, You know, we had this discussion. You wanted to have me back to talk about me to pick up my favorite film because we talked about your favorite film, which is Back to the Future, right? And Of course. So we want to talk about my favorite film, and I was in this quandary what to pick, but ultimately I decided if I have to pick my my favorite, favorite, favorite film, it would have to be Star Trek II, The Rathacon. So so I I sent you a (laughs) Blu-ray. You did. I was about to say that. It was so much your favorite movie that you asked for my mailing address and sent me the director's cut of this movie, which was very gracious of you. So thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. I was afraid you're going to think I was a creeper, you know, because <laughs> we've never, you know, <laughs> we know generally where we, each other live. But we only know each other online. So we've never met in person. This is This is the modern world. <laughs> Well, before we get started on our movie discussion, I just want to go over a a couple of quick thank yous, especially thanks to everybody who's given us support over the past couple weeks as we've premiered this new show. It's been awesome seeing good reviews come in on iTunes and on social media, and I really appreciate everything kind that people have said to me about the show. It's been a fun show to do, and it's something I'm excited about and proud of, and I'm really looking forward to continuing over time. That being said, make sure to listen to our previous episodes, so our test episode over Back to the Future that TJ mentioned, and our official premiere episode over Tron Legacy that Joe Darnell was on with me last week. And if you have listened to those already, make sure to share them with people who you think might like it, and also rate and review on iTunes. That's a big help as we're getting started, and uh, the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people find the show, and the bigger the audience we have to talk about films and celebrate films. So all of that being said, let's move on to our main discussion, which is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. (laughs) From hell's heart, I stab at thee. (laughs) Would you like to go over some of the stats, TJ? I would be happy to do that. This feels like old times, Chad. It does. So this film was released on June the 4th, 1982. The director was Nicholas Meyer, uh, he uh, directed and or wrote several several other films, uh, including he wrote uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, or he wrote a, a big majority of that film, actually. He co-wrote that film. Right. Uh, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, he wrote and directed. Um, well, uh, yeah, I think he had a hand in writing that. I know he directed it. And then The Prince of Egypt. So... Uh, so, uh, the, as I mentioned, uh, this film was also written by Meyer and Jack B. Sowards, technically, but uh, Meyer rewrote the script from the ground up. So, really, this is all Meyer's work, and it goes uncredited because he just wanted to make the film. And, and so, he didn't want to take the time to negotiate the deal there. So, um, and, and Meyer didn't know much about Star Trek when he came on. So, the music was by uh, James Horner, uh, who have sadly passed away, uh, what, was that this year or last year? It was just last year, so we just, I, I celebrates the wrong word, but we just celebrated that anniversary of his passing. 
we can celebrate his career for sure. Definitely. Um, this was kind of his breakout film. I looked over his films from before and they were smaller films. And, and thankfully James Horner found kind of a, a, a really good fit here with Star Trek and it kind of propelled him forward, I, I think. And he also did Star Trek three, the search for Spock. He did uh, Casper, Jumanji, uh, Titanic, Avatar, the Rocketeer, and a lot of other great films. Uh, didn't he do Braveheart? Or am I thinking of somebody uh, else? No, I think you're right. Let me double check that just real yeah, yeah. quick. I feel like it's. I feel like he did Braveheart. Um, so I'll go on. Um, let's see. So uh, the film also stars William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Walter Koenig, James Doohan, George Takei, Nichol, uh, Nichelle Nichols, and uh, Kirstie Alley is a newcomer here. And uh, uh, one other episode that Ricardo Montalban has been in, so he comes back to reprise his role here as well. I did double check. James Warner did compose the score for Braveheart. And one reason that it did not make the list that I have typed out in our outline is because he composed so many great film scores. He so many to so list much great that uh, in the show notes for this episode, which I will give you the link to later, I'm linking his entire filmography. So you can look forward to researching that a little bit later. So Chad, you haven't revealed to me yet whether you like this film or not, but I, I do want to ask you, I know we're going to talk about it later, but I just want to know, did, did you like James Horner's score for this film? I did like James Horner's score. It, it A lot of it felt somewhat Star Wars-esque. I, I, when I say that, I mean in like the battle sequences especially. Mm-hmm. Um, his action writing in those scenes is just as good as Williams, and uh, the variety throughout the rest of the score is really, it set the groundwork for what Horner did later in all of his other movies that we mentioned. And so, yes, I yes, will have yes. more to say later, but I do enjoy the score. Good, good, good. It's one of my favorites. So let's go ahead and dive into first experiences. And I'll actually start off with this one just because... Your first experience was today. It was today. Um, I have seen the Abrams... Well, I've seen the first two Abrams-verse Trek movies. I still have yet to see Star Trek Beyond. Shame on you. Yeah, I know. But... uh in regards to classic Trek in general, I had maybe seen five or six of the original series when I tried to watch it on Netflix a few years ago and then just got too busy. Also shame on you. Yeah, but you know, I'll, I'll just tell you, TJ, I really liked this movie. It was a great movie. Good, good, good. And it's more than just a good Trek movie. It's a good movie, which is part of the reason why I didn't want to do too much research going into this episode because unlike you, we're about to find out, I don't have very much <laughs> Trek experience. And so I wanted, I watched maybe three episodes of the original series leading up to tonight. And I watched the Space Seed episode from season one mm-hmm. of the original series, mm-hmm. which is the direct precursor to this story uh, because it's it features the premiere of Khan. Right. This story follows up on Space Seed. And I, I mentioned to you, it was optional. I, I said, you may want to watch this or you may not. I don't think it's necessary to enjoy the Wrath of Khan, but I think it's nice to have that backstory. Right, because they actually do give the backstory basically in the movie. So it's what you not required know. at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, four episodes of the original series. I didn't even watch the original motion picture. This was my Good. very first classic Star Trek movie, and it was a great one. So that was my first experience. What about yours, TJ? You know, um, Star Trek for me is so ingrained and I've like, I've just kind of grown up with it and I don't even know how because my dad is a casual Star Trek fan. Like he, he liked it okay, but somehow like for me, it's just always been there. And I don't honestly, kind of like with um, Back to the Future, I don't honestly remember the first time I saw The Wrath of Khan. I just know that I've always loved that film. And unfortunately, it was one of the ones that we didn't have on VHS, so we would occasionally rent it. Um, uh-huh. Because I was actually an infant when the when the film came out. So, <laughs> um, right. So uh, yeah, but I don't remember my first experience with it. Um, but but I can tell you, I rediscovered it because uh, 
I, I went for a long time. My family kind of went through this thing where TV was bad for you and we didn't watch much TV. And then as we kind of came out of that, I kind of rediscovered it. And I'm like, man, this film is so good. There's such great story here. Not only, like you said, is it a good Star Trek film, but it's a good film and story. And I mentioned that uh, Nicholas Meyer didn't actually know much about Trek when he came in. And he kind of, the way he directed it is he goes, as soon as he started kind of figuring out what Star Trek was, he goes, oh, well, this is Horatio Hornblower in space. I can do that movie. And so that's what he did. So so I think that was enough of a, you know, he, he, he honored Trek where he needed to, but he also came at it with a fresh perspective and a perspective of, I, I want to make this film that's a good film and not just a good Star Trek film. Which, unfortunately, the motion picture, which you mentioned earlier, is not a great film. I enjoy it, but I would never recommend that a non-Star Trek fan watch it. It's it's not great. Well, the same sort of thing happened for the example that's coming into my mind is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm. Alfonso Cuaron, to my knowledge, doesn't hasn't ever read the Harry Potter books that Interesting. I can think of. And uh, he arguably made one of, if not the best, Harry Potter movies in that series. I would say one of. One of. Yeah. So I think sometimes having somebody who's maybe an outsider to the franchise coming in and maybe having others on hand who can bring credence to the lore and to staying true to the characters and to the the general feel of the story. But really, you just want somebody in there who can make a good movie. And uh, that's definitely what happened here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's hard for me to recount like a first experience. But I will say that like Kirk, for whatever reason, has kind of always been... And I would say nowadays my hero is more Picard. Like that's more kind of who I am and want to be in my life. But like mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I just I just love Kirk. Like he, you know, he he wasn't afraid to punch somebody, and and uh, yet he he could be <laughs> he, he could be diplomatic at times. <laughs> so yeah, what he needed to be, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 I would say that the the Kirk that we see in Star Trek Two is the best version of Kirk of all even of all the films. Like because we get to see him really because of the experiences, which we'll talk about later, which are spoilers, like he really grows throughout the course of this film. And we are, we already see a more mellow Kirk who, who is tired and kind of, um, kind of mellowing with age. I'm, I'm getting into the story parts that we're supposed to talk about in the two or three bullet points from now, aren't I? <laughs> but it's I, okay. I, Let's go ahead and move into story a little bit if you want. That's okay. Fine. Yeah. So, so what we're seeing is a, it's a much more mellow Kirk than we've ever seen in the, in the, in the series, which there were 79 episodes of. And so we, you know, Kirk was always a, a brash, go get him, you know, jump in with both feet or, or even head first and, and look later uh, kind of a, a guy. And and here we're seeing a much more mellow Kirk. He's He's been promoted to admiral and admirals don't fly, right? They right. they sit behind desks and they push pencils and paper and they they commission ships to go places. And and he's just anxious and to get out into space. But but we find out that he's he's rusty. You know, he he doesn't remember how to do this properly. <laughs> and it's just, it's a great story for Kirk. I mean, this is as much, there, there's several threads throughout this movie, but this is as much Kirk's story as anybody's. He's like the primary focus of the story. And it's about watching him learn and grow as a character. And I love that this film makes him pay for mistakes that he's made as a captain of the Enterprise 15, 20 years ago. Um, that this film f follows up like one of the problems of the original series is a, is a product of the 60s right so so it, it there all the episodes are very episodic you can never in the 60s because you couldn't count on people having seen previous episodes because there was no such thing as streaming and and you know TV was not ubiquitously available of course um, they couldn't count on people having seen previous episodes so every episode had to be a in a bottle basically and so finally for the first time we know that everybody coming to see this film is probably seen 
Robinson episodes of Star Trek. And so they were able to follow up and, cre and create a thread of a story and say, hey, remember those things? Kirk didn't always do just the right things, and now he's going to pay for his sins. Like that to me is, is really captivating, and it really makes for a good story. Yeah, and that's actually one of my favorite parts about this movie. Having seen Space Seed, it's really cool to see a movie adaptation of a TV franchise react to the TV franchise. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times nowadays you do have, the, the one that comes to mind is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Marvel Cinematic Universe are connected, but the reactions in those two franchises are only one way. The show yes. reacts to the movies every time. Yes, that's frustrating. There has not yet been an instance of the movies reacting to what happens in the show. Sorry, this is a sidebar, but you know why that is, is because the producers of the movies don't really like the show or the fact that it exists. Yeah, which is disappointing because it's it really is. been getting good. I'm, I'm, it's a very good show. Yes. The next season featuring Ghost Rider has me a little bit worried, but we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. We'll see. We'll see. I, they haven't let me down so far. So anyway, sidebar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, so I really like seeing the movie react to the TV show for once. And yes, it, it works as a great sequel to the particular episode. It flows really well. It feels natural. And I wish we had more of this TV film connectivity uh, where they're reacting to each other in turn. And but how many franchises do we have that movies have come out of a television series? I mean, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I suppose, is one. But in general, it, it doesn't happen too much. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. I guess it'd be cool. I, I'm just saying it'd be cool if it did happen more often. If there was something that spun off of something but was still connected in a way. I don't. I don't yeah. know of any examples that come to mind. But uh, Star Trek does it really well here. I really like connectivity, and that's one of the things that I've loved seeing evolve. Like like Star Trek, even the Next Generation, they finally started having two part episodes. But they never really followed through a, a, an arc throughout seasons and things like that. And and D Deep Space Nine and Voyager both really started correcting that as we got later into the 90s and into the 2000s and started getting into, oh, we can have basically whole movies that are like, you know, 13 episodes long. Like like that that is the way that I love for things to happen. And then carrying that across so that even movies are connected into a universe. I really love that personally. I know a lot of people hate it and a lot of people that's their problem with Marvel is like this whole serialized thing. I, I love the connectivity. That, you know, so so I completely agree with your assessment of this film and its connectivity to the original series. Even if I find it ponderous that they chose what I consider to be a middling episode of Star Trek to follow up on. Uh -huh. Like, it's okay. It's it's not, it's not like there were some great episodes of Star Trek and, and Space Seed was an okay episode of Star Trek. I don't know what your opinion was of Space Seed. It was okay, but I mean, it was one of four Star Trek episodes I've ever seen. So I don't have a big yeah. frame of reference for how it compares. But knowing that it was sort of the lead-in for this movie, even though it wasn't considered for that to begin with, knowing it was a lead-in really helped meld things together a little bit for me. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed Space Seed for that reason, because I knew that more was to come. Yeah. And and for whatever it's worth, I mean, in the in the show and in the movie, Ricardo Montalban is a fantastic actor. Like, just, just marvelous. That is so true. And that's actually what I was about to say. Maybe uh, the reason they chose that specific episode is because... In 1982, um, Ricardo Montalban was doing Fantasy Island, I believe. Uh, so really capitalizing on his presence there and elsewhere at the time. Um, he, he was a well-known person who had starred in the series. Yeah, that, that may indeed be. Now, the story is that Harv Bennett, the producer who was commissioned to get Star Trek II done, um, when he, he actually wrote the first draft of the script, and, and he... He sat down and he had, was not familiar with Trek and he sat down and he watched all 79 episodes and he says, this is his story that he says, his takeaway was, whatever happened to Khan? 
And then I'm sure that the reason he was thinking that maybe was because of Fantasy Island. In fact, you know, Ricardo Montalban's schedule for filming Star Trek II was crazy because of his Fantasy Island commitments. So, right. uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So anything else about the story or maybe specific scenes that really stand out to you? Yeah, I was trying to think of this because it's hard for me to think of scenes in the movie because I think of the movie as a whole. But obviously, uh, we, spoiler thing, we spoil things in this podcast, right? Yes, we do. <laughs> okay, so spoiler alert. Uh, this is going to be a major spoiler. Obviously, the climax of this film is Spock's death. And I, I like that, that scene is so heart wrenching. Like I still, to this day, every time I watch it, I can't, like, I have to have tissues nearby. I'm, I'm not, I'm man enough to admit it. Right. I right, like that is a heart wrenching scene. And, and I think that anybody who doesn't, who, who, who would have a dry eye through that scene, I think they're not human. Like that, that is like, you have, <laughs> you have two friends here who have known each other and learned and grown with each other and and have been through life and death together well life together and and you know they know each other so well and and spock has is you know i really love the version of spock that is in this film like he knows who he is he's much more confident than he was in the original series he's not battling with logic versus his human half anymore like he knows who he is and he's 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 so it's such a great version of spock and then he's ripped away from us like so on on one level, obviously, like I hate the death of Spock, but on the other hand, like it is such good filmmaking and such good drama, and to see these friends having to part, and and the scene is so well done, you know, and and the the hands on the glass and everything, like that is, you know, that's the standout scene to me when I think of Star Trek Two, like I, you know, instantly that's where where I go is the death of Spock. Right, and that's the classic scene from this movie to the effect that it was completely cloned for Star Trek oh, Into Darkness. Yeah, don't, don't get me started. Right, and I mean, it's the inevitable com inevitable comparison. And that mentioning that movie, I think this scene is done so much better here. Oh, yeah. For one, just because it's a better movie in general. <laughs> yes. But for two, in this movie, we have mature Spock and Kirk. We have a long, long lifetime of them developing their friendship and their relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas in Star Trek Into Darkness, they've known each other for, what, a couple years? Yeah, yeah. This, it makes so much more sense here. Right. The relationship is so much deeper in this movie, and it makes that scene all the more heartbreaking because these are men who've lived their lives together, traveling and exploring and helping each other. And here one has made the ultimate sacrifice to save the rest. Right. The good of the many outweighs the good of the one. Exactly. So for, for me, I, I just love how this feels like sort of a big budget episode of the TV show. It, it's, yes. It's longer, but the characters still from the, the episodes I've seen, the characters still feel the same for the most part. Mm -hmm. And it's the same sort of story that we've gotten in the TV show in terms of pacing and arc and adventure and all that good stuff. Um, but of course, it's on a higher budget, so it looks better. And the costumes are better and everything's better. <laughs> and aside from all that, they get to do a lot more. They get to talk about friendship. They get to talk about um, mortality and sacrifice and vengeance and all this stuff that yes. maybe they would have been able to touch on one or two of those things in a TV episode, but they were able to do so much more than that in this movie. And I, we were talking a little bit before we hit the record button. What I love about Star Trek from what I've seen so far, classic Star Trek, is that it is human stories in space. I mean, that's about as sci-fi as it gets. Yes, there's some great space battles. There's some cool technology. It takes place in the future. That's all cool. But at the heart of it, it's humans reacting with other humans and experiencing human things. 
And that is what we get here is a whole bunch of humanity uh, just taking place in space. And it's a great story. Yeah. One, one of the things that I wrote, like it's actually at the top of my list. I, I realized I should probably reference my, my list of things to make sure I talk about. Um, th <laughs> this film is about characters more than the situation that those characters are in. I mean, and the situation is important, but it's about the characters. Like, uh, in fact, it's so much about the characters that we know and love that Ricardo Montalban initially turned down this role because uh -huh. he said, I'm not like, this is not a very big role and I just don't know if it's worth me playing. And and that so, so, so it's to the point that this film is Kirk and Spock and McCoy uh, and, and, the, and then the rest of the original series crew more than it is anything else. Like it is about those characters and their arc and, and what they've been through. That That's what it's about. The situation with Khan is the framing device. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's what brings them back together, essentially. Okay, I, I just want to mention a couple favorite scenes for me before we move on. Um, I love the return to the Enterprise after he's revealed that he tricked Khan. Oh, yes, it is great. The false communication with Spock over the communicator. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that's a great moment, and then they start preparing for battle, and this cool music's playing. And it... Khan, I'm laughing at your superior intellect. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me to explain to you the concept of the human ego. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. And then as far as the rest of it goes, the final space battle is a great moment, great music, just cool. Oh, it's so good. Such and good and music. It, it holds up fine uh, as far as the effects go. I mean, it, it's not new Star Trek, but it doesn't look bad by any stretch. It's it's way better than anything they've done in new Star Trek. Come on, Chad. It's, it's no, so much No, I just mean as far better. as like visuals go. Yeah, uh, sure. Okay, so there's flashier visuals in the new Star Treks, but like right, this, that's all I, mean. I don't need that. I don't 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 even want it. Like this is so much easier to follow, and it works so well. So one of the things that Nicholas Meyer did uh, is he said that, oh well, essentially these are submarines, so we need to have a submarine battle. Like because think about it, like space, they're just floating around. Like it's the same three dimensional place that you would have in a, if you were under the water, right? Right. So he, he did a submarine battle in space and it was fantastic. Like nobody had ever thought of Star Trek in that way before. And it works so well. And the whole, you know, Khan is inexperienced, but you know, so he's, he's thinking in two dimensional terms. Like that's all super fantastic and works. It's so believable. Like everything they concoct now in these new movies sometimes, it's just like, well, how, that doesn't even make sense, but this all makes so much sense, and you don't have to have the the camera zooming and panning and shaking and, and blasting. Like it all works so well in this movie. Agreed. Yeah. I did have a couple other because you were asking about favorite scenes. I, uh -huh. I did want to mention one of the things that happened with this film is that Gene Roddenberry leaked because he did not want like Gene Roddenberry didn't have any control over this film, but he was the creative consultant, right? So he did not like that they were killing Spock, and so he leaked the script so that fans would be angry and they would not kill Spock. So Gene Roddenberry, he's he's kind of a uh, yeah, he is what he is, but here he was what he was, <laughs> but um, he um, so he leaked the script. And so they got all kinds of hate mail and people ran ad campaigns and stuff. You can't kill Spock. We won't come see your movie, et cetera, et cetera. So they retrofitted into the movie. And actually, I don't even know how they would have made the film without it because the Kobayashi Maru is so important as you go throughout the film. But that was actually uh -huh. inserted later into the script and shot later because Nicholas Meyer wrote this wonderful way to kill Spock at the beginning of the film so that people would go to the theater and stop thinking about it after after the opening scene when Spock is killed uh, in, in the Kobayashi Maru sequence, which is so fantastic. 
Kirk even says in the corridor after the Kobayashi Maru sequence to Spock, aren't you dead? You know, <laughs> so he's just driving it home. And then and people are like, oh, it was a fake out. They're not killing Spock. And so that they can forget about it and enjoy the movie. And then the scene comes later and it's so much, much more impactful because you thought you were past that. Right. And so I love that scene for that reason. And I also love it because it's, it's just so, such a well-constructed scene to show like what's going on and how they're testing these cadets. And it sets up themes for the rest of the film. Like, uh, isn't the possibility of a no-win scenario something you've ever thought about before, Lieutenant Savick? Like, have you never thought about that before? And then come to find out, Kirk doesn't even believe in a no-win scenario, and now he has to face it himself. Like, this is right. fantastic writing. Right. So is this the first time we see the Kobayashi Maru in the series? It is. We've never heard of the Kobayashi okay, I assumed Maru. that. Yeah. Right. Cool. But it, it works fine because you, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to come up in, in regular conversation during the series. So it works well to retrofit it in uh, as something cadets go through. And so it was just, I, I consider that a great, like that's the second scene I think of when I think of Star Trek II. And then obviously like, you know, the, the initial meeting with Khan is, is so good and, and, and Kirk getting caught with his britches down. Like that, that is, I mean, like I said, all of this film, there's not a beat wasted in this film as, as far as I'm concerned. No, I agree completely. Any other scenes you want to talk about? Uh, I think that's it for standout scenes. I mean, I'm sure some more will come up as we go, but. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to characters. So um, starting off, I think we just need to talk about Kirk a little bit because yes. he, like you mentioned, that he's the focus of this movie and he's the one who grows the most throughout the movie, mm -hmm. I think. I, I, what I love about Kirk is he's got strong leadership and charisma, but he's also dedicated to his friends and to his crew. Yes. But at the same time, he shows that he's flawed and he's flawed the same way all of us are. We can be headstrong. We can we can be overconfident in ourselves. Um, but over the course of the film, as he experiences uh, these flaws that he's learning, he has he he's learning and he's growing over time and he's listening to his friends and to the advice of Spock and to the advice of Bones and he realizes that he can find his youth in being active and doing what he loves and the idea of sacrifice. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And then Kirk says, or, or the one. Right. Which he says twice in the film, which is so great because he says it in Spock's quarters too when Spock is handing command over to, to Kirk. And so we see this growth of the character that's so easy to follow and it, it's just great. I mean, I don't, I, what else do you have to say about Kirk? Well, I, I mean, I would just say that I, I love, like I said, this is my favorite uh, representation of Kirk because he has, he's obviously already grown from the series. Where in the series, he was kind of a blustering, you know, in a good, not in a bad way, but he could, he could definitely be, you know, like I said, jump in with both feet. He was young and brash. And here we see, you know, he's obviously having his 50th birthday. He's, um, I think it's, I think it's supposed to be his 50th. I don't think they say in the film, but I think the canon says later that it's supposed to be 50. Anyway. So he's having his 50th birthday and he's obviously grown some, but he, he, he's not afraid when he makes mistakes to acknowledge it. You know, Lieutenant Sabic, you go right on courting regulations, you know, because he didn't follow them and look what it, what it got, you know, he acknowledges to bones. He says, you know, when, when, and this is only in the director's cut, by the way, this a little bit of an extended sequence, but it, it I really like the director's cut. Uh -huh. uh, so he, he acknowledges to bones in that scene in, in the, in uh, sick bay. Uh, where he just lost a crewman and and Bones says, uh, you know, I don't remember. Bones says something to Kirk and Kirk's like, the only reason we're still alive is because I knew something about these ships that he didn't, you know, basically not because I had any skill or did anything right, you know? Right. It's a, it's a moment when he's acknowledging that he's not the best. He can be outsmarted and he was just lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so yeah, I, I really love Kirk in this film. And and we see at the end of the film, you know, that he has grown as a character, like when he embraces David and and he's standing on the bridge. Like we've seen we've seen his growth as a character. He has a great arc in this film. Yeah, I, and I, I love how he has matured from the very beginning of the original series, which is what I've seen uh, to this point. He, I, I like the older Kirk a lot more as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, what character would you like to talk about? Well, I think we have to talk about Savick because she's the new addition to the crew, um, and she's she's a very important to this movie. She's kind of a catalyst for Kirk and Spock, for that matter, to kind of bounce off of. Like she's asking the questions, you know, she wants to know how Kirk beat the Kobayashi Maru. She's the she's why we find out that Kirk doesn't believe in the no win scenario that he was supposed to be teaching her about, right? Right. And so he he cheated the Kobayashi Maru test and got a commendation for original thinking. Ha ha ha! Look at me, you know. And then he has to face this no-win scenario himself. So Savick is kind of the catalyst for these things, and she's played really well. In fact, I would say this is the best role, the best thing that Kirstie Alley has ever done. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> and, agree, definitely. And uh, it's unfortunate that she didn't come back for future films. But um, yeah, she she's a fantastic character. For some reason, I'll, I remember liking her a lot as a kid, and I, I don't know why. Like, I just, I think that she does this role well. She's kind of our our way in as an audience because we identify with her. Like, she's the new kid in the, on the block, and this is kind of what we would be like a fish out of water on the Enterprise with this experienced crew. Um, so, yeah, I, I like Lieutenant Savick a lot. Yeah, I don't have a lot more to say about her because you pretty much nailed it all in the head. But the my favorite scene with her was at the ending when uh, she's crying at Spock's funeral. I think that's such a powerful moment because she's Vulcan and, you know, they're not supposed to feel emotions in uh, that traditional sense. And uh, I, I thought it really spoke to the the hurt that she was feeling in the room. Yeah, yeah. Well, her mentor had died. Yeah. Yeah, it was a powerful moment to see a Vulcan cry. So I do have one thing to say. Uh, the, the, there were scenes cut from the movie and dialogue that told us why she, because ex- she was more emotional throughout than Vulcans are supposed to be. She's half Romulan. She was raised on Vulcan, but she's half Romulan. Oh, gotcha. Um, and those those scenes were cut from the, the film. I don't think that, that, that's neither here nor there. That's just a little piece of, of trivia. And and it's, you know, it is what it is. I, I wish those hadn't been cut from the film because it does explain a few more things, but it is what it is, so. That makes sense. And that's sort of the same thing they've done with Spock in the new Trek universe. Or is that, has that always been the case? Spock has always been half human, half Vulcan. Okay. And so he's always struggled more with this emotion, his relationship with emotions than most. And, and, and Spock has a greater arc throughout the movie series. Um, uh, spoiler alert, Spock will come back. Uh, but, um, oh, I definitely know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so he has a, this arc where he has become more and more comfortable with both his human half and his logical half. So, uh, so, so that's a great arc for him over the movies, but in, in this film, you know, I think we, if it's okay with you, we can transition to Spock, who I think is the other big thing that we have to talk about in this film. Yes. So Spock, uh, th- again, this is my favorite version of Spock too, because he's at ease with himself and he, he never felt at ease with himself in the series. Certainly not in the first season, which is mostly what I've watched recently. I've, I've been watching some episodes here and there. Uh-huh. Um, and he's, he's so not at ease with himself. He's in, and, and he, it was purposeful. Like he was trying to figure out how wrestling with his human half and his Vulcan half and, and how to be a good Vulcan because he's decided to live as a Vulcan. And, and here we see him at ease with himself. And, and finally he, he, you know, he, but yet he still has this logic where he's, you know, you can see, almost see the gears turning when we cut to, to his face when Kirk is, is, is trying to call the engine room and trying to get Scotty to get the engines fired up. And we know that Scotty can't cause he just collapsed. And, and so, you know, but we see kind of the gears going through Spock's head. Okay. 
there's going to be, you know, the repairs that need to be made are in this radiation room, and uh, I'm the only one who, because I'm half Vulcan and we have a stronger constitution, perhaps I can live long enough to make the repairs. And, uh, you know, we could, we could send somebody else to do it. They may not get it done. You can almost see these gears turning in his head. And so he makes this decision and he goes and he does it. And, and that is, I mean, it's, it's not as much character growth as it is just a powerful demonstration of the bond that he has with the crew and his captain and the, you know, the, the, just, you know, his, his willingness to sacrifice himself for the good of those, you know, who they all would have died if he hadn't done it. So. Yeah, that moment you're talking about is one of my favorite moments with Spock in the film because you can see the gears turn and you can he just stands up in a hopeless situation and he walks out the room determined knowing what he has to do. Yeah. And that that's just a great moment. Um for me, Spock was like the other side of the coin from Kirk a lot oh, of yeah. the time and I, I get the sense that. that that's that's yeah, exactly. That's what I was about to say. He always is. Um, whereas Kirk is the human emotional side of the coin. Spock is the uh, logical and driven by reason side of the coin. But here in that instance and a couple other instances, he shows that he is very human still. Maybe it's just embracing that other half, but it's also, I think, just a display of the connection he has with his crew and uh, the people he spends his life with and knowing what his duty is. Right. I mean, you can see that even when he he has to get McCoy out of his way, he does, you know, and he's he's very logical and, and whatever is the way Spock is. But you can see he's like, I'm sorry, doctor, I have no time to discuss this logically. Like, you know, he was just dying to have one more argument with McCoy, but he didn't have the time, you know, and, and so he... He, he does it as gently as he can. Like, it's such a great, mo like, all of that is, is such a great moment, you know? Uh-huh. It's showing that sometimes logic and emotion can go hand in hand. Like, they don't have to be opposite. Right. He can he can sit there and say, you know, it was logical that the needs of the many would out outweigh the needs of the few. But you know he did it for his friends. Like, exactly. it, the, the bottom line is he did it for his friends. Yes. And it's a great moment for that. Yeah. Now... I don't have a whole lot to say about Khan just because I, I don't, he's not one dimensional. That's not what I want to say, but uh, he's just a great villain in the sense that he's driven. He knows what he wants. He knows why he wants it. You understand why he's doing what he's doing. That's what makes him great. Exactly. And Ricardo Montalban is just a great actor. Um, I, I, I love his accent for one. Um, I can oh, listen yes. to him talk forever. <laughs> um, but aside from that, I mean, just watching the emotions play across his face and the clock ticking in his head as he's trying to figure out what he's going to do next. Mm -hmm. um, and he's so driven by passion and by anger. He's just a powerful character to watch. This is Seti Alpha 5! <laughs> he, he, yeah, he, some might say, and I've, I've heard the accusation that he's overacting, but I, I don't think so. I think it works really well for this character. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it overacting at all. In fact, there are several scenes where he's almost down to a whisper and he's eliciting his control by whispering and it and he's showing how dominant he is in the situation because he can whisper and you're going to listen i've done far worse than kill you kirk exactly yeah. <laughs> he's almost like the extreme version of kirk they're they're conflicting personalities in this movie because they're both driven by emotion a lot of the time yes um yes. where khan's blinded by emotion kirk ends up turning away a little bit realizing that you know maybe i have to approach this differently or i have to think about this logically for a second i have to approach this like spock would uh to gain the advantage and that's where they differ personality wise mm -hmm. yes I, I don't have a lot to add about khan other than that he he's probably the best villain that trek has ever seen and he has a reason for doing what he does um i love his accent it is it is fantastic 
Um, and I love his exchange. Like, like one of the one of the interesting things about this film is that Kirk and 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 Khan never meet in person. Right. But you you feel like you feel like they did because they have this exchange over the screen and, and you know and it, and it works out really really well. Like you feel like the sparks between them from such a great distance. Like they're in separating ships and they never see each other in person. It's 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 really great interplay and really fun to watch. Yeah, I, I think I was actually reading earlier where Ricardo Montalban was complaining that he never got the chance to be one-on-one on set with uh, William Shatner because they never did yes, share the screen yes. together. Yeah, he said that was his one regret about about the film is that he didn't get to do a scene in the room with William Shatner. Yeah. So he was just great. I, I like that character a lot. Yep, me too. Any other characters you want to mention? Not really. Um, one of one of the frustrating things about this film, if there is anything frustrating, is that it doesn't it doesn't give us any time with some of the other characters that we know and love. Um, I, I guess we get a little bit with Chekhov. He has a good arc through the through the film. He's a, obviously a first officer on a different ship, and and that's a you know that's good. Interestingly, he was not on the show in the first season, and so like the fact that he recognizes Khan is kind of weird. But you know the 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 non-canon explanation that is he just hadn't worked his way up to the bridge yet. That's why we didn't see him in the first episode. And Khan saw him in the corridor somewhere, and he never forgets a face. You know. So, but that, that's kind of a little bit of a trivia thing. So, but, but Chekhov has a good arc. Uhura, unfortunately, has always pretty much been relegated to hailing frequencies open, Captain. And so she she doesn't get as much to do as I would have loved. Um, but, you know, and, and Sulu, some, there was some lines cut for Sulu where he was going to be the captain. Like, basically, he was going to be a captain of the Excelsior in a few weeks. And he was just uh, hanging out until then. So he was thought he'd come along with Kirk on the Enterprise, basically, uh, for this training voyage. Uh-huh. And that, those lines were cut. So Sulu didn't get much of an arc either. So... That's that's like you know every film has its flaws and that would be this film's flaws. So uh, you know one of the things that I think that the newer Star Trek does do right um, with with the reboot with J.J. Abrams is they every film tends to find a way to give each character each of the seven primary characters a moment. Yeah. And these films didn't try to do that as much, or at least this film didn't. Yeah, I think part of what brought that about in the Abrams verse or whatever you want to call it is that in remaking or rebooting the franchise, they were trying to find lookalikes to a certain extent and people who could just bring out those personalities Mm -hmm. that people were so familiar with. So because they were paying that extra special attention to stuff like that, they were able to give each of those characters a little bit more uh, focus in the movies, which is to the new series credit. Yeah. As far as Wrath of Khan goes, the only other person I wanted to mention was Bones. Mm. Um, you get a little bit more of him at the beginning than you do throughout the rest of the film. But uh, what I love about Bones is he's like the voice of reason in the middle between Kirk and Spock. Yes. Where Spock can yes. be highly logical sometimes and Kirk can be highly emotional sometimes. Bones is just going to be right there in the middle telling him both how it is. Because sometimes both of them can be wrong. So he he's really grounded in that sense. And he has a couple of great one-liners in this movie. I don't remember any, since I've only seen the movie once, I can't say any off the top of my head. But So he, my favorite line, my favorite line that Bones says is uh, when, when he's arguing with Spock. And he can be very impassioned when he argues with Spock. You talk about Kirk being emotional, but, but McCoy gets very emotional. So he says to Spock, according to myth, the earth was created in six days. Now watch out. Here comes Genesis. We'll do it for you in six minutes. <laughs> so yeah, he's he's great. He he's always great. I wish he'd had more to do in this film, but but he is definitely great. Yeah, and and he's able to do that without being a trope. I think, which yeah uh, yeah is in, something I in really fact, appreciate. Some trivia: um, McCoy was supposed to say, which is something that he always said, or he said several times in the original series. He was supposed to say to to Kirk when when Kirk when they were holding restraining Kirk from getting and opening the the doors that would let the radiation into the engine room. He was supposed to say to Kirk. 
you know, Jim, or he's dead, Jim, which is something he said a lot in the original series. And McCoy even, like on set, they changed this because McCoy said, DeForest Kelly said, uh, you know, I said that a lot in the series and I feel like that's a trope. I think we should change it. And so they had Scotty, you know, say something a little bit different and basically, so, so, so that, that was a way they avoided the trope thing. So I think they balanced that really well of giving us McCoy, but not making up, you know, not doing the tropes sort of thing. Right. And you can make a good film without fan servicing like that. And yeah, they, yeah. they prove that in that situation, especially. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now let's go and talk about Mr. James Horner's fantastic score. Oh man. It's such a great score. Like it is, uh, it is one of my favorite Star Trek scores. Um, the, uh, I, you know, I, I sometimes, depending on the day, I might even say it's my favorite, but I, I have to usually give that to Jerry Goldsmith, uh, his fantastic work on the terrible film, Star Trek, the motion picture, but his, his work was fantastic. So this is my second favorite score most days. Um, and, and it's a really good score. Like there, there are so many, I meant to have iTunes pulled up so I could see the track list. There are so many great, uh, moments in this score I mean, uh, you know, you, even just like the opening theme, like it's it's reminiscent of Star Trek, but it's not necessarily what we've heard before. Right. Well, it's a it's a new theme to my understanding. Oh yeah. You get the original TV series theme, but then you move into this one heck of an earworm. Uh, <laughs> like as soon as the end credits finished, watching the movie earlier today, I was whistling it for the next twenty minutes because I couldn't get out of my head. Yes. Yes. So the, the standout tracks to me, if you have the uh, the extended version of the uh, of the score, there's a, there's a short uh, a a version with less tracks. I, my version has twenty three tracks. Uh, there may even be a more extended one, but this is the one that I have. Um, so obviously, the main title is a it's a great main title theme. Um, Enterprise clears moorings is a fantastic. Like it, it, it feels like the Enterprise. Like right. you fe- as much as Jerry Goldsmith's theme felt like the Enterprise, this one does too. Um, and then you have surprise attack, uh, Kirk's explosive reply. Um, and then obviously the batter, battle in the Mutara Nebula is fantastic, and Enterprise attacks reliant. Uh, basically, everything towards the end starts to get really good. Um, and then, and then like, the, I can't even listen to the, the theme Spock dies without, um, without tearing up. Like that's how connected it is with that scene to me. And then he has this fantastic rendition of amazing grace after Scotty's playing the bagpipes. Oh, it, it, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. So, um, yeah, that was, it was fantastic. Oh, oh, I almost skipped over Spock's theme, his little, uh, kind of haunting theme. You hear it in Spock's quarters and then you hear it again when, when Spock is, is, is dying, um, and then it kind of morphs into the whole Spock dies track. Like it is, he just did such a fantastic job. Uh, and, and especially following on the heels of Jerry Goldsmith, who did such a fantastic job, uh-huh. he managed to evoke the same types of things without copying like anything that, that Jerry Goldsmith did. Right. So, yeah. Uh, for, so for me, my experience with Czech, we've talked about has been limited, but Jerry Goldsmith's score is one thing that I do own and I was moderately familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was following up that with James Horner's score and, you know, it's, it's great. And I mentioned this earlier, there's so much variety in this score. There are times when he makes it sound like a horror film score. There are times when it just sounds like straight up sci-fi, straight up adventure. And there are some times where it even just feels like a drama film. I mean, there's so much genre music stuffed into this and it all works and compiles together so well. yeah you, you, you could hear what you're saying chad and it sounds bad but in taken in the context of the film especially it works very well like the like the horror stuff that you're talking about is on the space station regular one they don't know what they're going to find there and they they find these these people that Khan has has slit their throats and strung them up right like that is very much a horror scene right and he does that so well 
Oh, for sure. Um, so yeah, th- this this film uh, and its music uh, really really work together very well. But I, I I like to think it's hard for me to separate. But I, I like to think that the music is good music on its own. But for me, I can't listen to this music. So so it'd be good to get your opinion on this. But for me, I can't listen to this music without like almost seeing you know the people and hearing the dialogue in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I but I think the music works well on its own. But it's hard for me to gauge. Well, that'll come more to me with time, I think, um, because, you know, I watched the movie today Mm -hmm. and then as I was writing my notes for the podcast, I was actually listening to the score for the first time as well. So I've got one playthrough on each the film and the soundtrack, but I'm sure over time, you know, that I have the same sort of thing with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone score where that 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 soundtrack plays like the movie and <laughs> I can listen to that score and I can hear individual lines of dialogue and I can see scenes happening in front of my eyes and I, I think that's a great mark of a good score you, you can ask my wife so sometimes I'll, I'll be quoting dialogue as I'm listening to the soundtrack <laughs> while I'm working or something and she'll come up into the room and she'll look at me funny because I'm sitting here working at my desk and all of a sudden I'll say uh this is SETI Alpha 5, you know, when the, when the music cue hits that point. And she'll just be like, what are you doing? Like, she she's a very, very casual Trek fan. <laughs> so, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yes, this is a great score. It really is. Yeah, as far as individual tracks go, you mentioned pretty much all the ones I mentioned. Um, I'm just going to go through them real quick. So the main title, man, why don't more films have great main titles like this? Like, I don't know. Why can't we just start a film looking at this expansive sky and hearing great music? I, I wish we could do that with more movies because uh, it the works days gone so by. well here. Yes, yeah, for sure. And then I also wrote down Enterprise clears moorings mm-hmm. because it, it just feels so. It feels like Star Trek to me. Like I don't have that background of experience with Star Trek. When I hear that song, I think, oh, yeah, Star Trek. This is cool. And then I mentioned the battle music earlier. You mentioned this track as well, the battle in the Mutara Nebula, which is just mm. excellent Star Wars level. Action it's music. probably the best track in the in the soundtrack, I think. Yeah, the, the amalgam of the themes coming together and then the space fight music, it, it's just really well done. Last couple things. I wanted to mention the music that plays in the background of Khan's Reveal. It's got that eerie creepiness. That, mm-hmm. yep. oh, it's just good. And it's like, oh man, this is a bad guy. This is a really bad guy. I think it's the one you're talking about is called Khan's Pets, right? On, on the soundtrack. Yes, I think so. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned the gorgeous, amazing Grace rendition and then end titles. Please, every movie ever, give us end titles, please. <laughs> I agree. Because end titles are just, it's like a suite of music from the whole movie. And why wouldn't you want that? Yeah, I hate it when soundtracks omit the end titles. It really bugs me. Yeah. And going back to New Trek, that is something that Michael Giacchino does very, very well is end title music of course, in all yeah. of his movies. So we get a great end title track in this as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so to sort of round out the discussion, let's talk about what the takeaways from this movie are. So obviously we've talked about it's a great story, it has great characters, it feels like good Trek, it feels like a good movie, but what is the underbelly? What What is the stuff that we want to walk away from this movie having learned? So, like, I don't know how to tie it all together necessarily. Maybe maybe it'll, it will tie together as I talk, but um, one of the things that uh, Nicholas Meyer did for Star Trek is he made the world of Star Trek feel more real. We know it's in the 23rd century, we know it's in the future, but he made it feel more real, and the way he did that is by making Kirk more mature, but exhausted and depressed. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the themes in this film. And then you have the, the, the working through that. So you have friendship, old age, death, like these are all themes in the film. And, you know, somehow this, this film kind of 
wraps that up and says, you know what, this is this is life. This is what life is. And so the point of, of life is to, I, I don't know, be help me out here, Chad. I don't know. I, I'm trying to tie it together. It's not working. <laughs> it's about being active and doing the things you love. And I think that sort of mitigates the pains that come with aging a little bit. Being in the company of people you love as well and as you're doing the things you love, I think is something that it's trying to communicate a little bit in this movie is that, uh, you know, Kirk is at his unhappiest at the start of the movie when he's another year older and he's sitting behind a desk in an office not doing what he likes doing. And then at the moment, at the end of the film where he says, I feel young, it's at the end of the story. He's back as the captain of the Enterprise and he's ready to go off on another adventure. And that that's something that I took away, especially, is that we feel our best and we do our best when we're doing what we love and with the people we love. Yeah. That's good. I Isn't like that. Is that sort of what you're going for? Yeah, I think so. I was having a hard time pulling it together. So yeah, I, I think that's I think that's good. And then of course there's the the needs of the many versus the needs of the few or yes, the one. Yes, yes, And sacrifice and the idea that we need to sometimes put others' needs before our own, especially the needs of the people we love. Spock's sacrifice is so so clearly demonstrates that idea in this movie. And it feels authentic. It's not something they just did because they wrote it in a script. It it feels like the climax of the movie has led us to this. And it's the inevitable conclusion. This is what has to happen in order for us to be successful. Mm-hmm. And um, that ties into my next thing, which is love versus hate. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the reason that Khan loses is because he's blinded by hate. He's blinded mm-hmm. by a need for vengeance. And to contrast that, the reason the Enterprise wins is because Spock sacrifices himself and because everybody's making sacrifices to protect everybody else. Yes. Everybody has everybody else's interest in their mind. They're not trying to be selfish about it. They're trying to do what is best for the crew. And that's why the Enterprise is successful is because Spock is willing to take that extra step to sacrifice himself so that nobody else has to. You're way better at this themes and relevant stuff than I am. <laughs> I try. <laughs> and anything else? Those those are the main ones that I wrote down. Uh, Echo. Echo. That that works great. So, uh, any final thoughts about this movie, TJ? Um, I did have just a, a couple of these are going to be kind of random things that I just didn't haven't really worked into the the conversation. Um, the the thing that I one of the things I love about this film I, I don't think I said this explicitly but like the previous film Star Trek the motion picture was very ponderous and meandering and this film is like in direct opposition to that like even the uniforms uh-huh. are much more fiery and hot and and the film is very confident in what it's doing and and I love that about this film I love that w- one of the things that was missing. Um, from Star Trek Into Darkness, where they tried to basically uh, redo this this sort of thing with a much younger Kirk and Spock. It didn't make sense. But but the other thing is that the the death scene, again, spoilers for Into Darkness as well, Kirk's death scene, because they did reverse it, like they tried to reverse the situation. So so Kirk's death is not final. It's not bold. It's not the end of the, of the, of the movie. And that would have been a very bold choice. And I would have even liked Into Darkness. I, I, again, I like Into Darkness fine, but it would have been much better if they would have said, okay, we're, we're really going for it here. And that's what they did here. Like this is like, they, they left a couple of threads that they could follow up on, but it, essentially Spock's death is bold and final. It's the end of Spock. Right. And, and that's, that's very bold. And when you're bold like that, it tends to make better movies. And, and we just, you know, filmmakers have a hard time doing that these days because, oh, my franchises and, and, and my, my monies and, and, you know, they <laughs> here they they, they did something very bold and, and it worked really well. 
they made a choice and they committed to it and they didn't find yes. any way to make a cop out. And I mean, I don't know how it resolves itself later in the films. I'm not too concerned about that right at this moment. But exactly. In this you don't need film, to be in the context of this film. It's just wow, what a great thing that just happened. It's sad. Well, but it's, it's final. Great in terms of the story. Well, great, great in the terms of what the sacrifice accomplished is what I mean. Yes, yes. And we're not trying to resurrect him. We're not getting Khan's blood and trying to inject it into Spock's vein. Like, that's it. We're done. <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. It's, right. it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic story writing. And then the other note that I had was that the Genesis device is probably the greatest MacGuffin that the Star Trek universe or probably most films have ever seen because it makes sense that it exists. Unlike, you know, a lot of things in movies, a lot of MacGuffins, you're like, what, what, why was that even created in the first place? Like, and, and here you see, you're like, yes, you can see how the Genesis device can be used for evil, but you understand why it was created because the point of it is to create habitable worlds for the good of, of people and, and, and other aliens. Like, it, it makes sense and you you know you're not trying to figure out what what's the why did they create that like you did that was just going to cause trouble so it's a great MacGuffin I think yeah I agree I just had a, made a few notes that I thought were interesting some kind of trivia stuff um so originally uh they the um they were thinking of getting uh, Marla MacGyver's back the the actress um Madeline Rue um, the ship's historian that was seduced by Khan, that was his wife, basically. We assume that's his wife that died, uh, that he references. Uh -huh. um, and she was supposed to return as Khan's wife. That was the idea. But they discovered that uh, she, the actress, was confined to a wheelchair with multiple sclerosis. And instead of recasting her, they just wrote her character out, which I thought was a classy thing to do and wish they would have done that with Savick in the next film. <laughs> because if they can't get the actress, just write her out. Um, yeah, so I think it's always better to write out characters rather than replace them. Yep. Um, the Genesis planet scene in the Wrath of Khan is uh, one of the very first computer generated, entirely computer generated scenes, which was um, done by Lucasfilm Graphics Group, later, which later became Pixar. Oh, cool. I was very impressed with that when I watched earlier today. I was like, wow, this is 82. That looks good. For 1982? That is amazing. Yeah. It really is. And and for a film with an $11 million budget, like, so um, it was like, I think it was 40, 38 million or 40 million for a Star Trek, the motion picture. And the, the studio basically said, here's $11 million. That's all you get. And and they did amazing things. Like they recycled footage, sure, of, of the Enterprise and stuff, but but you can barely tell it. And, and like they did amazing things for $11 million with this film. Yeah. And this is one of them. <laughs> so... Uh, and then, okay, Khan's final line, uh, from hell's heart, I stab at thee for hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. And that's a quote, direct quote from Moby Dick, which kind of confirms, like, because kind of where we're headed with Khan, he's essentially Ahab, right? And you, right. he devolves into these ramblings and stuff. So so that's, that's uh, a direct quote from Moby Dick. And then, okay, final, final little trivia thing. Paramount sold the home videotape for $39.95, which was unheard of, um, since most VCR tapes at that time cost twice that much. And they were going to need to sell it uh, for um, uh, at least 60,000 copies to break even, and they sold 120,000, over 120,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow, that's impressive. And yeah. I didn't realize that VHS tapes were ever that expensive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're talking early in the technology, so. Right. Well, that's cool. Yep. Good trivia. I like trivia. Cool. Good. My final thoughts on this movie is stuff I've already basically said. It's not just a great Trek film. It is a great Trek film, but it's a great movie. And that's evidenced by the fact that I, somebody who does not have very much Trek experience, thought this was a very, very good film. And uh, 
then you're coming at it from the other end where you have a lot of Trek experience and you've seen probably everything Trek has ever released and you I love have? it because it's a great film and it's a great Trek film. So there, there's a lot to please people here. I have seen every episode and every movie made except for the animated series, which we pretend doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I've seen all the episodes of all the series and all the movies. And speaking to it being a great movie, it deals with themes, mortality and sacrifice and all that kind of stuff. It deals with the same themes that other movies that are not sci-fi films deal with, and it does it better than them. Yes. So I think that that's evidence of how well done all of this is. And that being said, it does represent the best of what Trek has to offer, from what I can tell, and from yes. what general consensus seems to be. And it has me excited to explore more in the future. This is essentially the peak of Star Trek, but that, but that, that is by no means a casting judgment on much of the rest of Trek, which is, for the most part, very good. Um, there are some great episodes of Trek, and and typically episodes is where Trek does best. Uh, but th this, especially as far as the movies, this is this is the peak. On, uh, for better or worse. Um, there, but there are the good Trek films. I can't wait for you to watch, uh, ultimately, Star Trek VI, which is the other Nicholas Meyer-directed Star Trek film. It is the second best Star Trek film. So. Cool. I'm looking forward but to it. But there, there are other good Trek films as well. Anything else to say about this movie, TJ? I, uh, yes, but I think we should wrap <laughs> it up. This is, this is my favorite film, and it pretty much always has been. Awesome. Well, with that, that is the end of the second official episode of Cinescope. Um, so thank you all for listening. Uh, remember, for contact, you can find the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast or at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please rate and review on iTunes. That is so important. I, I can't say that enough in the early days of a podcast and mm -hmm. in any podcast you listen to. You have to rate and review it if you want it to grow and to get more listeners. So if you could do that, that'd be awesome. Remember to email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you're interested in co-hosting, if you're interested in doing what TJ did today and talking about your favorite movie, let me know. Email me and we will try and fit you in whenever we can. That would be awesome. That being said, TJ, what would you like to plug for people to find you? So as you can tell, because of my love for Star Trek in general, I'm kind of a nerdy guy. And so uh, that led to my career as a web developer. And uh, I am uh, independent. And so I, you can hire me. So if you want to do that, head out to uh, buzzingpixel.com. Uh, that is my company, Buzzing Pixel. And so you can hire me there. And uh, you can find me on Twitter if you don't mind putting up with uh, being all over the map and long ramblings about various things. Uh, I am TJ Draper Pro <laughs> on Twitter. Great. Um, and as for me personally, you can find me on Twitter also at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And also on Facebook at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And that contact information, that weird Twitter handle, those are all going to be in the show notes, which you can find at thecinescopepodcast.com. So that is our episode. Make sure to come back next week to hear from an exciting special guest that I'm not going to tell you right now, but you're going to see next week. And it's going to be really cool. And I'm really excited. And TJ, it's been great to have you back. And talk about one of your favorite movies and i hope to have you back again sometime in the future yeah it is great to podcast with you again chad thanks for having me no problem everybody thank you for listening and talk to you later bye